Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the CAF America Radio Network, a production of the Charities Aid Foundation of America. As the leader in global giving, CAF America offers more than 20 years of experience and expertise to corporations, foundations, and individuals who wish to give internationally and with enhanced due diligence in the United States. Through its industry-leading grant management programs and philanthropic advisory services, CAF America helps donors amplify their impact. This show is dedicated to these donors and the charities they support. CAF America is uniquely positioned to serve as the bridge between these important partners and transforms vision into meaningful action. Guests on the CAF America Radio Network are leaders in their field who share tips for success and stories that inspire. Our host is Ted Hart, the CEO of the Charities Aid Foundation of America. This is a live call-in show. Add your voice by calling 914-338-0855. After the show, you can find all of our podcasts at capamerica.org. Don't forget to dial 914-338-0855. Now, welcome the host of the Cap America Radio Network, Ted Hart. You know, I would like to start off by asking you to share with our audience a little bit about the work and the focus of the National Endowment for Democracy. Sure, thank you for the opportunity. Uh, the National Endowment for Democracy is a private nonprofit organization located in Washington, D.C., and we're dedicated to the growth and strengthening of democratic institutions around the world. And each year, NED makes more than a thousand grants to support projects of non governmental groups who are working democratic goals in their countries. And in 2016, um, we were able to make more than 1,500 grants in 90 countries um, for more than $150 million worth of project support. That's really, really important work. Of course, your work gets even more difficult and even more important because of uh, what's commonly sort of referred to as the shrinking of civil society. Um, increasingly across the world, foreign funding, even private entities, uh, is being equated to negative trends. Um, how do you think that this is affecting philanthropy's role and specifically your ability mm -hmm. to make a difference internationally? Mm -hmm. um, this is a really important issue for us, specifically for the work that the National Endowment for Democracy does because of the, the type of work that we do. Our grantees are, are some of the most vulnerable to, these, uh, to this situation. We're committed to supporting civil society, yet around the world the trend is to kind of squash civil society or unintentionally by some of these methods. Um, in terms of the ability to work, it is making everything a lot harder um, all around making grants internationally now. It's just much more complicated no matter what sector you're in because there's a lot more regulations. The banking institutions are um, sometimes going a bit overboard on their compliance because they're scared of getting in trouble when there's sanctions or even just uh, agreements for banks to share information across borders. Um, as well as finding um, sometimes the, the civil society groups who are still willing to work when they're sick. Mm -hmm. 
so for them, of course, they're working in country. They're trying mm -hmm. to make a difference. Correct. Uh, funding becomes extremely important. And here you are trying to get money into the country right. um, with increased regulations. Do you, do you have a sense of, um, and this is obviously specific to mm -hmm. 90 different countries, you mm -hmm. only have a few minutes to, is your concern that this is more often than not purposeful? Uh, or is this accidental to increase anti-money laundering mm -hmm. uh, and civil societies getting caught up right. in? Do you have, give us a sense of what the, the world looks like? I think it's both. Um, and for the work of uh, in democracy promotion, we're seeing the intentional side of it. Um, and there are governments that are, are out to not allow democratic <laughs> improvements in their countries. They see civil society as a threat rather than an asset to their countries. And we think that's a shame. And we're committed to supporting those civil society groups because that's the basis of a thriving culture. And, and one of the, to your point, sort of part of a thriving culture mm -hmm. uh, is, of course, the ability to have freedom of speech, mm -hmm. the freedom of association, Correct. and those are two areas that are particularly under threat. Um, so how do you succeed in 90 countries mm -hmm. with that kind of headwind? I can't tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> it's just that difficult. No, it's it is that, that difficult, yeah. and we, we do it very carefully, but also we... Um, invest in our own resources, all of that, to be able to provide the support that we need to uh, to the groups on the ground. It's just, right. it's just harder, so we have to work harder. Well, it's such important work. Grants are only one tool, albeit a very important mm -hmm. one, and, and as you said, um, that uh, you've been able to this year increase your mm -hmm. grant making, which is great, um, that grant makers have at their disposal um, to help strengthen civil society, grants are just one tool. Mm -hmm. How can grant makers use their position to push back against sort of negative mm -hmm. narratives and the threat against civil society? Right. I think there's a lot of things that grant makers can do. Um, and first and foremost for us really is to stay true to our mission and keep that support going to the civil society groups as best we can and find the ways to support those groups. Um, Something we do very intentionally is doing very targeted grant making, um, not spending millions of dollars to support you know giant initiatives, but to really create sustainable civil society organizations that have reasonable budgets that are also easier for us to support, and and seeing the core support of civil society as a goal in and of itself, not to focus too much on impact and results necessarily when um, in some scenarios. Just the existence of the group is the positive is, is result the positive, we need. Yeah. So, and sometimes yeah. being able to to measure something that is not supported by the local government uh, becomes that much more difficult. Right. But I would imagine because of your expertise, um, it starts. You know success when you see it. That's correct. You do. You do. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Well, Nancy uh, Herzog, Senior Director of Grants Administration at the National Endowment for Democracy. Thank you so much for being my guest here on the Cap America Radio Network. You're welcome. Thank you for asking me. Thank you. Next up here on uh, the show, uh, we're going to have Christopher Procopo. Uh, Christopher is the director of grants. We're getting a little bit of feedback here. Um, but he is the director of grants management at the Leona M. and Harry B. Helmsley Charitable Trust. So, uh, uh, Chris, as you come in and get settled, uh, we are live on uh, Facebook. So just to let everyone know, uh, that you can find us at facebook.com forward slash Cap America. Um, and so now that uh, Chris has settled in, um, let's start off um, helping our audience um, learn a little bit about the work and focus of the Leona M. and Harry B. Helmsley Charitable Trust. 
Sure, thank you for having me. So the Leona M. and Harry B. Holmes Charitable Trust um, has been around in its current form for about eight years, and we've been making grant making primarily in health. Uh, we've coalesced around a theme of really broad health with both disease-focused areas, access, um, as well as some place-based work in Israel and uh, Africa. Okay, terrific. Well, what you said focus on health mm -hmm. um, and focus in Israel and Africa. What are some of the, the health issues that you're particularly interested in in those areas? So in Israel, it can be health innovations, how to get more access to some of the rural communities in Israel, but also in Africa, sanitation, uh, cleanliness, uh, water security and safety, things like that. The things that um, also contribute to uh, healthy societies. That's terrific. So the, the trust has been doing this work. It's been active, you said, I think, for eight years. Roughly, yes. Um, so you learn a lot in eight years, <laughs> but also you sort of getting started in, uh, in eight years. Um, so from your experience in grant management, what do you think are the characteristics of an effective grant system? And then I want to go on and just ask, how can grant makers make their processes more streamlined without sacrificing quality, which I think is a, uh, an it's issue for everyone yes. to, to have to deal with. Well, it's interesting because when I started the trust, we were still very new and actually had not, we didn't have a process, did not have a system in place, had no grants management database. So it really was this great gift of starting from scratch. And we were able to look at kind of what the community told us was best practice, how to set things up, um, where to find efficiencies, where people had oftentimes fallen a little short maybe in their process development. <clears throat> and really empower our staff and be a partner of our staff moving forward where the program and grants management team really work together to find a way to make grants happen and no one's really a barrier. Um, and we've really tried to impart as staff come on board to really make, the, make it clear um, we're, we're your teammates. If you work together with us well, things will go very smoothly. Right. I think that's a very important part. And I would imagine for you in creating that teamwork, it's easier to uh, then get results and mm -hmm. get reporting sort of built in from the beginning, it's not sort of an add-on to the end? Yeah, I think that we, I mean, nothing is perfect. We are, uh, the continuous pr process improvement is very important, um, but trying to be predictive, trying to think through the process and why you're asking certain questions um, is really a powerful thing right now. If you could, um, share with us maybe uh, one of your, your favorite stories of something that needed to be improved because of something that happened. Is there a particular story that you like to tell that gives people a sense of how that kind of improvement can work through a system and then be meaningful? So I think um, a great example for us is that we fund a lot of medical research. And benchmarking success in medical research is a rather uh, ambiguous process. Um, and when, when we first started, we tried to create very rigid um, guidelines on what success looked like for us and very quickly realized we had it all wrong. How do you kind of make it flexible enough so people can talk about what they're accomplishing without being boxed in and almost having the devil in the details prevent the larger successes. So really flipping around what we were looking at as for success and really looking at really what the researchers were able to do, what the long-term aim was without really stifling their own work. Because there's so many reasons of well, the, the very nature of research is it's not the same as building a widget. Correct. Uh, so <laughs> and going through that research process sometimes uh, you don't get the outcome that you thought you would get, but that's part of the research process is that you need to learn where the failures are so that you can retool to get to a success. Um, how do you do that in a grant process and still have a sense of beginning and end and reporting on outcomes? How, how do you do that? Well, it's really, it's really measuring what we feel are indicators of success in the long run. So when you look at, I, 
getting people to accept that sometimes a failure in research actually is a success is actually a very counterintuitive thought process for people. So writing into our grants, putting in our system, putting in our reporting, that listen, we want to hear about all of your results. If they're not what you expect, that's okay. Because we, we learned something, and then also we want you to talk about it. We want you to go out in the field and say, listen, we tried X study. It was not successful because of this. Don't recreate this. Um, let, let this sleeping dog lie and move on to the next thing that's successful. And we've been able to show people that even if they don't get the same result they want at the onset of a project, they may still get renewed if um, there's still validity and efficacy for what we're funding in the long run. That's right. And that's where um, a, a grant officer or a trust uh, like yours builds up the expertise to be, be able to, over time, know yourself the difference right. between something that it just didn't come out in the way, but the process was still valued mm -hmm. and we learned something, as opposed to someone who just took your money and didn't really right. accomplish anything. <laughs> and knowing the difference between those two becomes a very important part of your professional Right, and, 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 keep, and staying level-headed during that process, too, where um, I'm a pretty calm person. I mean, I, I'm excitable and talk fast, but when you look at kind of looking at the broader strokes of what we're trying to do with some work at, saying, okay, let's talk about this, not react to it yet. If we get if we get hear back from a large research project that they're hit, having a stumbling block, instead of saying, oh my god, your clinical trial is behind on enrollment, this grant is, this grant's going sideways, we have to think about what's going on, saying, listen, okay, what happened and how can we improve it? Is that we have to redo the enrollment, redo the, the protocols, and think through kind of that process in general. Exactly. So again, learning and, and, and making that learning process part of your own professionalism as a grant maker. Um, Chris, if you don't mind, we're going to uh, just take a, a very uh, quick break. Um, but when we come back, I want to ask you uh, to sort of weigh in on the importance of compliance with relevant laws, and particularly since you're working outside of the United States, how does Remember our podcasts and archives are always available 24 hours a day at capamerica.org. If you're listening today, our phone lines are open. Call in and ask a question by dialing 914-338-0855. Now, back to the Cap America Radio Network and our host, Ted Hart. I think that compliance is very important with private foundations because, um, as I said earlier, when we were first starting, we had the opportunity to talk to a lot of our peers and talk about what they feel was done well, what they feel was a challenge for them, and a lot identified that you really want a very strong compliance process from the beginning to avoid problems, because oftentimes when there's a problem, when there's something that arises, that's when you have to blow staff, you have to have all these other steps that may not be totally necessary, um, and really the compliance piece is meant to be complementary to the program due diligence. Um, our program staff are the subject matter experts um, with the compliance experts. And how do we kind of leverage both expertise to make the best grants possible? Because at the end, we really want to focus on impact, um, and we need to be we need to be compliant to keep our impact moving forward. That, that's right. I mean, the last thing we want to do is move a grant and have it get stalled because of some compliance right. issue, and then maybe the opportunity for research has been lost. Correct. Uh, so I, I think that's that's a very important topic for, again, professionals, not only what do we want to see happen, but what are local authorities and other laws going to, going to be done. 
those parameters that you want to take some risks in your grant making. And to do that, you really have to have a very buttoned up compliant process to make sure that um, it's all thought through and how you're approaching that uh, risk. Terrific. Uh, Christopher Prococo, the uh, Director of Grants Management at the Leona M. and Harry B. Helmsley Charitable Trust. Thank you so much for being my guest here on the Cap America Radio Network. My pleasure. Thank and you we have a, a special guest here. I see her just uh, off from camera here. Uh, Michelle Grenius is here, uh, the, the uh, leader of Peak Grant Making. If you don't mind stepping in, I know you weren't necessarily scheduled, um, but we're live on Facebook, uh, and oh. we're here on the Cap America Radio Network as well. Um, we're right here live Thank at you. Peak Grant Making, the Grant Managers Network Conference. Uh, tell us, how are things going, and what's going on here? Amazing. How Thank you so thank much you for having us here, and thank you for joining us here on the Captain America Radio Network. Thank you very All much. Right. Terrific. We do have uh, one more guest here uh, who's making her way over. This is a, a good friend of mine, Tatonia Fair, uh, Director of Grants Management at the Andrew E. Casey Foundation. So good to see you again. Thank you. So uh, good thank to you. you so much for coming. Um, now, I, I, I think it's probably unlikely that there's any of our listeners who don't know about the important work of the Andrew E. Casey Foundation, but just in the more niche profession <laughs> who's uh, either watching us live on facebook.com forward slash Cap America uh, or listening to us live today or on the podcast. Tell us a little bit about the work and focus of the Annie E. Casey Foundation. Well, the Annie E. Casey Foundation was started by Jim Casey, who uh, started UPS and named it for his mother. And the foundation has been in existence since 1948. Um, we say that the work that we've been doing has really been the last like 25 or 26 years, the concentration of work. And we focus on child welfare, juvenile justice, um, also leadership development, economic opportunity, and some community development, um, among some other areas. But we are um, funding primarily in the United States. We do not extend beyond that. And so it gives us great reach and depth um, across the country. And we generally give about $110 million away annually um, to both um, grant-making entities, traditional 501c3s, as well as sometimes government entities and universities. 
I think one one thing that uh, most of us in the grant making profession have really grown to appreciate and rely on the Annie Casey Foundation is the enormous amount of data that you collect uh, about the welfare of children around the country. Yeah. And that's really good. That, that's not just sort of very superficial. Mm -hmm. You really dig down into communities. And that's really where I, where I wanted to go uh, with our, our discussion here. Philanthropic mm -hmm. institutions sometimes uh, become separated from their communities, particularly when they've been around for a while, or even community foundations that might grow very large and, and sort of think beyond what, why they were actually there and, and lose their roots, or mm -hmm. forget their roots. Um, how can um, uh, foundations and other grant makers be more in touch with their stakeholders, whether it's direct service to um, a community, their employees, or beneficiaries? Mm -hmm. What can you help? Because it, it is something that happens. Right, definitely. And I'll speak from my experience, both working with nonprofits as well as different areas, not just private philanthropy, but also community and corporate philanthropy over the years. I am so proud of the way Casey focuses our kids count data. It's a great example of what happens locally. Um, our, part, our internal partners in Exxon are working year round to really think about what are these key indicators that impact children and their welfare and making sure that we collect that data and disseminate it in a way that allows people who are at the local level to use it and then start to act. That's, That's the right. whole purpose That's of right. Kids Count. And I think about the fact that with Kids Count, a lot of our partners on the ground are related and connected to community foundations. I myself just believe in the power of, yeah. and so when you're, for instance, we're located in Baltimore. We do have offices in D.C. as well as in Atlanta, but it's so important for us to connect with local funders and community foundations to find out what the true areas of need are within a local city, state, or county. And so we work very extensively with community foundations both in Baltimore and around the country because they are generally closer to the work, and they're closer to the people and the beneficiaries of those very grants that we make. So the role that community foundations play also in those areas where you are not outside of your mission but you need to do something different and have to work through something like a donor advice fund, mm -hmm. which can be so critical to bringing multiple funders together, That's which right. I know is another key uh, area of interest for CAP, which is partnership. Community foundations have an amazing ability to serve as an intermediary for those type of like multi-level efforts. And so we just, we believe in community foundations, we fund them, but also we partner with them very extensively. Well, in the Kids Count, I think it's such a uh, important um, uh, touch point for the foundation world mm -hmm. to see how you can take expertise that you've developed mm -hmm. and prepare it and provide it in such a way that the utilization of your data is way beyond your grant mm -hmm. that, you, that you fund mm -hmm. and has really become the basis of go-to data mm -hmm. on whatever is happening with children. And mm -hmm. if you can't see that in the data at Annie Casey, um, I think for most funders, apart from you and most um, governments, mm -hmm. then it's not real. Mm -hmm. When I started my career, I worked in Cincinnati um, and working at the Advocate for Children and Families. And in Cincinnati at that time, which was in 1995, we relied on that data. It was really at the start of the data collection. And locally, we needed it to be able to see what we can and should do differently for children. So it is something that we actively hear people all across the country and even outside the country looking at that model as a way of action and acting. Yeah, um, that's right. And you mentioned earlier partnerships. They are becoming more uh, popular and more important as, as funding shrinks coming together and, and having um, grant makers realize that maybe they can't meet the 
entire need, but maybe together. Um, corp it, in particularly corporations, um, I think, have a responsibility to engage in community development mm -hmm. and how they can partner with other groups rather than just trying to go it alone or maybe they don't really have enough money to make a difference. As in any relationship, they're uh, accompanied uh, with usual concerns about cooperation and power mm -hmm. imbalances. As someone who has worked on both sides mm -hmm. of the corporate philanthropy system, what can community foundations do to strike the right balance mm -hmm. with corporate philanthropic partners, continuing their mission and not just giving up to those who have the money? Oh, right, exactly. Well, again, I think the role often of community foundations is that they are normally representing people on the ground, those local nonprofits in the area, and they can really ensure that the ideas that funders sometimes think are solutions are not exactly what the community or the beneficiary needs. That's and right. I also think that community foundations are able to start and engage us in those conversations that say, it's fantastic that you're funding in this area, but we have local individual donors on the ground, corporations, community and family foundations who all really wanna come together around this area and we need to kind of sync it so that we're not putting a burden on our nonprofits, right. that we're really working collaboratively so they're not having to ask multiple parties for money. I think again, community foundations is that convener, in, you know, they play a role of intermediary and convener for us to make sure that we know when we do apply that money, how it is best going to be utilized and also the power balance. I mean, it is important because often sometimes even community foundations, they too are receiving funding. That's and right. so they enter the door sometimes tentatively when working with corporate and private foundations. But the key is we're all interested in doing the same thing, mm -hmm. which is helping this group get better, helping these children be safe. That's right. And so from that perspective, it allows us to just focus on what the end result is and not think about who's bringing the most dollars, but really thinking about the fact that we're all coming together to do one thing. And I, I think that's the key. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with you. I've often referred to sort of foundation funds um, and, uh, and grants that, that are in the philanthropic marketplace as sort of the, the venture capital money mm -hmm. of the philanthropic world. Um, oftentimes it becomes uh, sort of looked at as core funding mm -hmm. um, and, and sort of keeping the lights on funding as, a, as, as opposed to sort of pushing the envelope for change. Mm -hmm. There's a role for both. How do grant makers find that balance? Well, I think that, and we, many of us who've been in the philanthropic sector, there are organizations that are really pushing us, which is we actually have the ability to take risks. Mm -hmm. And so there's, it's okay to take a big bet and bring a whole bunch of people together to fund something and it not work out. Right. The lessons that you learn that you from learn that are the, are the critical right. point. And so we do have, from both the IRS perspective and others, we have the ability to go out on a limb. Mm -hmm. And we really do need to do a better job of exercising that. Companies, corporate funders, just as much as private foundations, there's really not a lot of ties on what we can't do. We do know what those lines are, but there's so much more that we should be, we should be pushing the envelope. We yeah. should be trying to do things that have never been done before. But we do also have to remember that when you think about individual, private, corporate funding, that percentage is so small That's against right. the larger government and other entities that and are the funding. Individuals. 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 And yeah. so you know that there's a limit to what you can do and you'll never have enough money to really solve anything. Right. So again, partnership and pushing as far as you can go to help people as best as you can while you're in is key. But I also think that corporate and often private funders have the ability to fund long term. And that's something that Casey has done. We will go in for years 
on an initiative. And sometimes things work the way we want them to, and sometimes things don't. Right. But the fact that corporations and um, often community and private foundations, we can actually go in and say we're going to make a 10 or 15-year investment. And there are lots of people who have right. uh, collaborated with your organization That's and right. around the world who are willing to make those long-term commitments, which is what communities need. And, out, and, so. and if, um, if, if funders are not willing to take those risks, who will? Right. Uh, because, mm -hmm. as you said, they have the latitude. Even though many of them approach their work in an even more conservative mm -hmm. way than perhaps even corporations or, or others might, uh, where do we learn those lessons? So I'm so mm -hmm. glad that you put that on the table. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's an important lesson for all of our listeners that, you know, think of ways to stretch your community, to stretch your dollars, mm -hmm. because you are the best can really help everyone learn in their communities. Absolutely, absolutely. So Tanya Fair, uh, Director of Grants Management at the Annie E. Casey Foundation, thank you so much for being my guest oh, here you, on the Cap America Radio Network. Thank you. Thank you for all that you all do. Great. Mm -hmm. um, and that uh, wraps up our show here on uh, the Cap America Radio Network here at the Peak Grant Making 2017 Conference uh, here in Hollywood. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to the Cap America Radio Network. Tell all your friends and colleagues to check out our production schedule. Sign up for our free newsletter and download our iPad and iPod-friendly podcasts at capamerica.org. Thanks for listening to the Cap America Radio Network.